Please turn with me to Acts 17. We continue to look at the, the story of, of Paul and Silas and Timothy on their, their second missionary journey. And we're going to look this morning at verses 10 through 15. And if you're able to this morning, if you'd stand with me in honor of the Lord as we read his word together. Remember, they've, they've just uh, been in Thessalonica, and now we come into verse 10. It said, Luke writes, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, and with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. You may be seated. May God be glorified through the reading of his word this morning. And Heavenly Father, we do ask for your glory to be manifested in the reading of your word, our understanding of it, the teaching of it. We pray that you would allow us to to be like the Bereans, to, to study your word, and then to be obedient to it through faith. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Verse 11 here in Acts 17 is is a very famous verse. Here in verse 11 we read, The Jews here in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So we we have the idea of, of being a Berean. Maybe you've heard that expression before. You need to be a Berean. You need to be someone who studies God's word and, and make sure that the things that you're being told match with what God's word says. Being a Berean has become simultaneous with, uh, has, begun, has become synonymous with being discerning, with, with trying to make sure something is, is true and, and not false, being able to recognize what's false. We're going to talk about the positive use of that phrase, being a Berean, as we continue to go on this morning. We're going to dig deeper into verse 11. But before we do, let me just also talk about some of the the negative ways or maybe abuses that this phrase, being a Berean, has has sometimes taken on. This, This phrase, being a Berean or being discerning, sometimes is used in some unbiblical ways. In fact, over the last 10 years, there's been kind of a rise of discernment ministries online and in other places. And, and some discernment ministries are very good. You know, they help us say, okay, here's, here's this teaching, here's this teacher, and here are some, some things that are, are heretical about this teaching. Here's why this teaching is wrong, and, and, or here's why this, this religious group doesn't match up with biblical Christianity. That discernment can be very helpful. But sometimes these discernment ministries can, can go awry as well. I was reading one article, and the author wrote this about these, this proliferation of discernment ministries and the, abusement, the abuse of discernment ministries. The, the author writes this, when discernment goes wrong, when discernment, determining truth from error, when it goes wrong, it can lead to hyper-fundamentalism. In other words, saying we're the only people who are right and everybody else who disagrees with us in any way is wrong. It leads to hyperfundamentalism. The, the author says by doing things like guilt by association. So here's here's uh, here's us, and then here's here's this person, and and here's this here's this person that they quote, and then this person quotes this person, and this person has quoted this person. This person's a heretic, therefore this person must be a heretic as well. Guilt by association, or some some logical leaps that that aren't grounded in, in truth or some uncharitable assumptions. All these things can lead to this hyper-fundamentalism saying, okay, everybody else is wrong, we're right, and we're going to narrow the walls more and more and more until it's just, just our very, very tiny group. My, my grandfather, 
in his garage, he had this, this sign posted that said, all fishermen are liars except for me and thee, and I'm not too sure about thee, you know. So in other words, uh, everybody, everybody else besides us is wrong. And, and I've seen this happen in, in church after church, organization after organization. It, we, we, we say we're being discerning, but really it's this hyper-fundamentalism. We're saying, okay, everybody else is wrong, and, and I'm gonna, anything you disagree with me on, I'm, I'm going to, to say, well, you're now out of the fold, and the, the walls get smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, the, the church that I was at, one of the churches that I was at growing up, there was a, a pastor who, who said he was being very discerning and and, you know, every week it seemed like he would just kind of attack the popular thing in the evangelical world and say, you know, those people are false teachers and those people are false teachers. And he got the, the church so kind of hyped up on being discerning that, and, and, and kicking people out of the, the fold of Christianity who didn't agree with him that eventually, that eventually the church turned on him. You know, the, the walls got so narrow he was now on the outside and, uh, and lost his job as, as a result. That's not what being a Berean means. Being a Berean isn't just kind of disagreeing with everybody and saying, okay, I, I have this opinion and, and here's some Bible verses that I'm going to say agree with me. And if you don't agree with my interpretation of, of every Bible verse, then you're outside the fold. That's, that's not being a Berean. And, and acting that way, taking that approach to discernment, actually makes it harder to focus on true error, on true heresy, and to rightly recognize truth. Here's the main idea that I want us to look at as we look at this text this morning. Being a Berean, being a Berean means humbly, humbly and eagerly seeking to understand in Scripture what God has actually said. I want to humble myself and I want to go to God's Word and I need to be eager to actually understand what God has said and then by implication, I want to be obedient to that. I want to say, okay, it doesn't matter what, what I think. It doesn't matter what the, the culture thinks. It doesn't matter what my favorite teacher thinks. I, I want to know what God thinks, and I'm going to go to, I'm going to take the teaching, I'm going to take truth, people, things that people are proclaiming as truth around me, and I'm going to take that, and I'm going to compare it to God's word and say, okay, God, what do you say? Because that's what I desire, and that's what I'm going to be obedient to. I, I truly, if I truly desire to do what God wants me to do, that requires humility, Arrogance, self-centeredness, pride, jealousy leads me to, to formatting angry mobs that we see it here developing in, in Acts 17. But humility means I, I, I assess what God's word says. And instead of fake outrage, I, I, I truly say, okay, this is what God's word says and I want to be obedient to it. Notice as we go through the text this morning, there's a a heart and a mind aspect to this. There's a, a heart that needs to be sensitive to what God's word says and a, a right heart to receive God's word. And there's also an intellectual component to this. And we're going to talk about both of those things this morning. But we, before we do, I just want to, we're going to drill a little bit deeper on verse 11. But before we get to that, I want to just give a little overview of what happens in, in these verses. So let's look at an overview of, of Paul and Silas and Berea. Open your Bibles, be a Berean, uh, open your Bibles, and look here at verses 10 through 15. By the way, of course, if you ever come to, to church and no one tells you to open your Bibles, that's a warning sign, right? We're going to open our Bibles, and let's, let's look at what happens. So remember what's happened in Thessalonica. They're on, their, they're on the journey, they're traveling along the Anation Way, the, the Via Ignatia, and, and they, they travel and they arrived in Thessalonica, and as they're in Thessalonica, there's that that, that dust up, that the Jews are jealous in verse 5, it says, and they, they take some wicked men of, this, of, the, of the rabble, and they, they form this mob, and they get them kicked out of Thessalonica. Then, in verse 10, the brothers, that's the believers, they send Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So Paul and Silas arrive in Berea. Berea is like, I think, 50 miles south-southwest of Thessalonica. If you're along the Anation Way, this is a little bit south of that. Contemporary writers described Berea as a, an out-of-the-way town. It wasn't out-of-the-way in the sense it was this, this tiny, tiny town. It was a, it was a moderate-sized town. It, it was big enough to have a, a synagogue here in Macedonia. So it's, it's a reasonably-sized town, but it's, it's, it's off the, the beaten path a little bit. And they arrive here in Berea, and they go to the synagogue when they arrive, again, about a, a three-day journey from Thessalonica, and they 
began to do in Berea the, the same thing they've always done. They find the synagogue, they find the place where people are open to receiving the teaching of the Word of God, and they begin to teach. Verse 11 draws a contrast with what happened in Thessalonica. Here's where things get a little bit different than what they just encountered. It says, now remember in Thessalonica, you go back earlier in the chapter, it says that he's there in the synagogue over three Sabbaths, and it says in verse 4, some of them are persuaded. So a, a, a small group are persuaded, but verse 5 typifies the, the, normative, the normative response by the Jews in Thessalonica. They, they don't receive what Paul is teaching. They're, they're jealous, and so they get stirred up. So a, a tiny number believe, but, but the majority response of the Jews is characterized by, by jealousy and resistance to the word of God. But, but here, something different happens. It says, these Jews were more noble. They're more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, and they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, that, that word there, noble, is kind of an interesting word, right? The ESV here translates that word noble. Uh, the NASB uses the phrase noble-minded. I think the NIV uses the phrase noble character. The New English translation describes them as being open-minded. If I were to tell you, okay, this, this, that, that person over there is kind of, they, they act like nobility, what, what might you think about that person? Maybe in our, our culture, if you, someone said that person acts like nobility, you might think they act a little bit arrogant or aloof. Or if I said that person has noble character, you might think, well, they're, maybe they're, they're brave or they're some sort of moral giant or something. But, but here, as Luke uses this word, it's, it's used to describe someone, originally the word was used to describe someone who was of noble birth, but then the word began to kind of have this connotation of someone who acts like a person who has uh, noble birth in their, their lineage. So they, they have on some, these, these positive character qualities specifically of being open-minded. They're a, a noble person, a person who has the ability to, to listen to an argument and, and, and think about it, to consider it. They're, they're, re, they're reasonable people. They have high standing of ability to, to listen to an argument, to listen to a person present their case. That's what the word means here. To be noble means to be open-minded, to be willing to receive discussion. And the, we'll talk more about that as we go on later this morning, but, but notice what happens here. here. This is a little different than what happened earlier. Verse 12, instead of some believing, it says here, many of them therefore believe. So as they listen to what Paul and Silas say, they don't just respond with this knee-jerk reaction of jealousy. They, they listen, and then they, they take what Paul and Silas are telling them, and they compare it to Scripture. They say, okay, is what Paul and Silas are telling us about the death of the Messiah, his suffering in our place, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, meaning that he is the Messiah, the one sent by God to, to save us from our sins. Is this true? Okay, here's what the Scriptures say. Here's what Paul and Silas are saying. And it says because they had that ability to listen to what was being said, instead of starting a, a riot, they believe, many of them, therefore believed. And not a few, not just of Jews, but of Greek women of, of high standing as well. The situation doesn't stay positive, though. Somehow, some 50 miles away, the Jews from Thessalonica hear what's going on. And you would think they, were, they would have been content to get Paul and Silas out of, out of their synagogue, out of their region, out of their, their city, but they're upset when they hear, verse 13 tells us, that the word of God is being proclaimed by Paul at Berea, so they come there too. And it says that they do the same thing in Berea they had done at Thessalonica. They, they agitate the crowd. They, they stir people up. And as, as people get stirred up, the brothers... The believers there at Berea go, okay, we've seen how this story ends. And so they do the same thing there that they did in Thessalonica. They say, okay, Paul, it's time for you to get out of there. Paul leaves. They send Paul off. And Silas and Timothy remain. The Jews' jealousy here is, is tragic. And it continues that pattern of opposition that we've seen so far. And then the text that we're looking at this morning ends in verse 15. Paul arrives in Athens, verse 15. They conduct him in Athens, 
He receives, the, the people who conduct him receive a command for Paul, for Silas and Timothy to come to Paul as soon as possible, and then they, they leave. And we're going to leave Paul this morning in Athens. Uh, next week, we're going to pick up with Paul in Athens, and then we're going to leave him there for eight weeks. We'll come back in eight weeks, and, and uh, poor Paul will have been by himself that whole time there in Athens. And we'll talk about the gospel to Athens beginning uh, next week. But we leave him there this morning, and Silas and Timothy are going to eventually join Paul in Athens, and then he's going to send him back into Macedonia. Timothy's going to go back to Thessalonica. Silas, I think, is going to go to Philippi, and then they're going to come join him in, in chapter 18 when he's in Corinth. But anyway, he's, he's there this morning. Here, here's what I want you to see about these verses. Paul and Silas arrive in Berea, and, and Berea is a place that is more receptive to the gospel message than Thessalonica was, and the reason why? The reason that Berea is more receptive to the gospel message than Thessalonica is because there's something they are something called noble-minded. They're, they're open to receiving teaching. And there are two characteristics of a person who is noble-minded that we see play out in verse 11. There's an eagerness a heart attitude, and, and then there's also an, an intellectual component. We're going to look at each of these. We're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning look at these, these two facets of what it means to be noble-minded, what it means to be open-minded to the truths of God's Word. Again, one facet focuses on the heart, and the other facet that we're looking at here focuses on the mind as we delve a little bit deeper into verse 11 here. So let's first of all as we say, okay, what does, what does it require for me to be a noble Berean, to, to be truly a, a biblical Berean? What does it require? Number one is this. It requires a heart that desires to receive God's word. If I'm going to be a true Berean, truly a, a biblical Berean, a person who's practicing biblical discernment, I must first have a heart that desires to receive God's word. Look at verse 11, and there's three things that I want you to notice here as we think about a heart that desires to receive God's word. First of all, notice the action that takes place here. It says that they received, they, that they took in. They don't resist hearing what Paul and Silas have to say. There's a, there's a reception of, of content. That's, that's the second thing I want you to notice. What is the content that they are receiving? It says they received the word, they received scripture, they received God's teaching. So they, three things, they, they receive, they're not resisting, they, they have this heart that receives. The, the content, what they're receiving is scripture, we're going to come back to that. Nothing fancy about Paul and Silas' teaching, they're not receiving some rhetorical flourish, they're not receiving some philosophical uh, sophistry, I mean, the, the, what they're receiving, the content, the content of what they're receiving is God's word. And then notice the manner. The, the third thing is the manner they received. It says, with all eagerness. There's not a reluctance to receive what God's word says. There's an, an eagerness, a desire, a, a posture of, of readiness. Paul uses this word, same word in 2 Corinthians, to describe people being ready to, to be obedient to God. So there's, they're, they're receiving they're receiving God's word, and they're receiving God's word with all eagerness. They say, okay, I desperately want to know what God has to say. That should characterize the heart of all true biblical Bereans, all true biblical believers. I, I want to know what God's word says. I'm looking forward uh, to sabbatical. People have asked me, are you looking forward to that? Yes, I am. Yeah, excited about that, mostly. You know, a little nervous. I'm excited to spend some time uh, going deeper and, and understanding some aspects of God's Word. I've talked about that a little bit last week. But I'm also just, you know, um, I'm looking forward to kind of resetting my mind, you know, just kind of doing a, a reboot, right? One of the things I try to do in preaching is I, when, when, I, when I'm giving a sermon, I try to go deep into the text, and then I try to come up for air and and give a little, like I'm doing right now, you know, go deep in the text, you know, come up for air a little bit. I, I feel like as I, I'm, I'm hoping during sabbatical I get a little bit of a reset because sometimes, some mornings I feel like, I feel like in terms of the, the presentation of the message, and so, okay, here's, here's God's word, and now I need to study the word, understand what the word says, and then I need to kind of present what the word says. 
that, that process of organizing the message, that process of kind of giving some illustrations to help you understand the biblical truths, some mornings it goes better than others, right? You know, some mornings I'm like, you know what? Uh, I was just not connecting. You know, the, the text was there and, and God's word was there and I feel like that was communicated but in terms of presenting it in an understandable way sometimes or getting the organization in such a way that people could, could grab onto it, coming up for air. Sometimes I've, I'll look down at the clock. I, I'm, who's kidding? I don't look at the clock. Um, no, I do. I, I do. I, I look at the clock. I'm like, man, I've just been, I've been in the, the, the text for a long time here and, and, and people haven't had a chance to kind of come up for air and let the, let the word process, process what the word is saying. So I want to spend some time letting my mind, and getting better at that, kind of refresh my mind to help that part of the sermon communication. But you know what? Um, I'm always intrigued, even Sundays where I feel like I haven't given uh, people enough uh, illustration or whatever to hang their, their hats on. It's always interesting how people respond to the teaching. People come up to me, okay, hey, God's word said this, and, and this is what it did in my life. You know, Paul, Paul did this, and this is what's going on in my life, and, and, and this is, th- thank you for, for preaching. I mean, sometimes people like the stories too, but, but it's, it's the text that drives us as a church, right? And if I came back from my sabbatical with, you know, zero new good stories or whatever, I mean, <laughs> like, uh, that, that's, no one's going to, ultimately say, well, that was, that was failure. Why? Because Bethany Community Church, people come and they listen during this time because they want the text. The other stuff helps get to the text, but we want the text. We want God's word. That's what the church desires. The, the, the text is the text. The text is our authority. The, the text is what we're eager to receive. We can get entertainment other places, but, but, and we can, but, but here as we come together at this time of the, the service, we're saying, okay, give me the text, Daniel. What, is, what does God's word say? You know, there's, inter- there's an interesting contrast in the Old Testament. You can turn there if you want, uh, 2 Kings 22. In 2 Kings 22, you have Josiah, th- this good king. And, and Josiah as Josiah reigns, as they rebuild the temple, they find the book of the law. And remember what happens whenever Josiah is read the law? It says in, in 2 Kings 22, verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, what did he do? He, he tore his clothes. That was a, that's a heart that's eager to receive. What does God's word say? Because that's what I want to know. He, he heard it and he responded. He tore his clothes. And the king commanded, verse 12, and in verse 13 he says, Go. Inquire of the Lord, inquire of Yahweh for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the the words of this book that's been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. What does God's word say? Josiah says, tell me that. That's that's what I'm eager to know. I, I don't care about your political opinion. He's telling his advisors here. I don't don't care about anything. I just want to know, what does God's word say? What is the word of the Lord to us? Because we've been disobedient to what his word has revealed to us. That's what I'm eager for. Now, contrast that, contrast that with his son. You see his son's response to God's word in Jeremiah. You can turn to Jeremiah 36, beginning in verse 23. Josiah's son Jehoiakim is also given God's word. There's a scroll that's read to him by Jeremiah's scribe. Or Jeremiah's scribe gives the the scroll, and uh, one of the king's advisors is reading the scroll to the king. And it says, as as Jehudai read three or four columns, listen to what the king would do as he heard God's word. It said the king would cut them with a knife, cut them off with a knife, three or four columns. It'd be read, and he'd cut off with a knife, and he'd throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. So Josiah, here's where the Lord tear, tears his garments. Jehoiakim, his son, hears God's word. Fire, fire, fire. Even when 
Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll. He would not listen to them. You see, both Josiah and his son Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, intellectually they can understand the words of the scroll, but, but on one hand you have a heart that desires and is eager, to, okay, give me God's word, that's what I want to know and that's what I'm going to apply. The other heart says, I don't care, Shh, burn it, I don't even want to, to listen to it. What does it look like for you and I to have a heart that wants to receive God's word? What are some characteristics of a heart that desires to receive God's word? If you're a person who considers yourself pretty discerning, you say, you know what, I'm kind of a Berean. I'm a truth teller. I'm a discerning person. If, if you think that's true of you, and yet your heart is, is hard, cold, you're judgmental, you're arrogant, that's not the heart of a Berean. Here, here are three characteristics of a heart that desires to receive God's word. One, one, we see in Scripture, there's an awareness of God's greatness. If you are a person whose heart is prepared to receive God's word, you are a person who's aware of God's greatness. The, the prophet Isaiah would say this in Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and does what? You know, trembles at my word. A person who's going to rightly approach God's word, first of all, has an awareness of God's infinite greatness. There's an awareness of God's greatness, and then combined with that, there's an awareness of my need. That's the second characteristic. I'm aware of God's greatness, and I'm simultaneously aware of my need. First of all, I'm aware of my finiteness compared to the infiniteness of God. God is the one who's created all things, and I'm, I'm, I'm a very tiny, tiny creature in a very, very vast universe. I mean, think about how much you and I don't know. You know the expression, what you don't know could fill a book? I mean, what you, what you and I don't know fills the universe. We don't even understand the, the, the planet that we live on. It's interesting, just kind of reading some, some things this past week and this morning even about things we don't know about the world we live on, th things we don't know about this, the ocean, things we don't know about the tectonic plates. I mean, we can't, we can't accurately predict the next five minutes, much less the next 5,000 years. We don't know what happened. We can't truly say everything that happened over the last five minutes, much less over the, the last eons of, of creation. I mean, there's so much that we cannot grasp or understand. And yet, and yet, despite the fact that our, our knowledge is, is, so, is so tiny, you and I are asked to make decisions that have eternal consequences. You ever thought about that? You are being given, you are being given a very, very small data set in terms of the data set, in terms of the amount of information you personally can, can, can receive and, and, and understand, and yet you are being called upon to make decisions about eternity. Your only hope your only hope is to be aware of that need and to call upon a person who has infinite knowledge. A person who's going to approach God's word rightly, that has a right heart attitude, is aware of God's greatness and is aware of their need. Psalm 119, verse 155 and following, salvation is far from the wicked for they do not seek your statutes. But listen to this, verse 156 of Psalm 119, great is your mercy, O Lord, grant me life according to your rules, according to your law, according to your, your word. So God, I'm aware of your greatness, I'm aware of my need, my spiritual, intellectual, physical need, and, and, and now be merciful to me. Give me your word. Let me know your truth. The third thing we see about a heart that desires to receive God's word, number three, is a, is a yearning to hear, a, a yearning to receive that, that teaching. Again, Psalm 119, verse 131, I open my mouth and I pant. I pant. 
because I, I, I long, I yearn for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. You know, it's, it's like a, a hike that you're on on a summer day and, and, and there's no water around and you begin, oh, I really use really a, a drink of water. It's, it's that long run you go on on a summer morning and, and there's, there's no water around. You're just, oh, and then you finally find the water and just, just guzzle it down. I, I, I'm aware of God's greatness and I'm aware of my need and, and I, I yearn for God to meet that need in his word. There's this, this panting, this desire I have. God, reveal your word to me. So as you come to God's word, on a daily basis in your quiet time. As you come to God's word with your family, as you come to God's word on, on a Sunday morning, before we get to the intellectual component, is, is the heart attitude right before the Lord? I'm aware of my need, I'm aware of God's greatness, and I, I'm eager for God to meet that need through his word. There's a right heart attitude of humility as we approach God's word. So that brings us to the second thing I want us to think about, a mind, our mind, a mind that strives to understand God's word. If we're going to be Bereans, if we're going to biblically approach God's word, we're going to need to have minds that, that strive to understand that teaching. Here's the second phrase that I want us to look at more closely from verse 11. It says they eagerly receive the word. They receive the word with all eagerness. That's the heart attitude here. But then secondly, there's this intellectual component too. It says examining the scriptures daily to see if, if these things were so. So Paul and Silas say something and they go, yeah, I'm going to take that. I'm going to go to God's word and say, is, is that thing that they've just taught true? They, they've talked about Jesus being this man named Jesus, being the Messiah. Does, does, do the things they say about Jesus match what the prophets testified concerning the Messiah? This message that the Messiah had to suffer for my sins, is, is that seen in the Old Testament scriptures? Is the Messiah being resurrected, raised, being raised from the dead, is, does that, is that in accordance with scripture? The idea that I'm saved, that I receive eternal life through, not through my own efforts and works, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone, the Messiah, is, is that in accordance with scripture? That's, that was the intellectual component of what they were trying to do, is they had hearts that desired to receive that teaching. So, Notice four things about the mind that strives to understand God's word from the text. Number one, notice this. The study is of the scriptures. That's, again, the content. My, my foundational study here isn't philosophy. It's not just digging deep into myself and saying, self, what do you feel about this to be true? It's not studying my friend's opinions Ultimately, the, the foundation of what I'm going to do to receive God's word, to be a Berean, I'm gonna, the focus of my study is going to be Scripture. Number two, the study is, is careful. Anacrino is the word that's used here. It means to, to engage in, in careful study. It's, it's a word that was used in the judicial system in the first century. So a, maybe a city administrator would have a complaint brought to him and he would, he would, he would judge, he would, he would investigate the, the matter. So it says they were examining, they were, they were testing, saying, okay, here's, here's what you're saying, here's what the scriptures say, and, and now let's, let's, let's examine, let's, 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 let's turn it this way, and let's turn it that way, and let's, let's look at this closely, and let's look at this closely and see, do these things match with one another? There's, there's a careful study of it. This study is, is careful. They're engaging as one person, but it's in the careful study of a question. And I want to I spend some time here. I want to I give you some thoughts. These aren't original to me. Uh, give you some thoughts here about how you should read God's Word. And, and maybe you would say this morning, my time in studying God's Word is, is not careful. I, I get up Time is pressed. I don't have a, a real good way to, to approach Scripture. And I, 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 I said, well, I, I need to read something, and I do this, and I just kind of open up. Oh, this looks like an, uh, hold on, hold on. Okay, yeah, what's, and then I kind of go on with my day, and there's not a careful study of God's Word. Or maybe I, you do sit down and say, okay, I'm going to, you know, New Year begins, I'm going to read through the Bible and, and 
first couple of chapters of Genesis go okay, and then you start going deeper and say, I don't even know what I'm reading anymore. I'm not sure what to, to do with this. And I'm certainly not sure how it applies. Maybe that's something you've struggled with. Maybe, maybe not. I want to spend some time here talking about how do you engage in careful study of the Scripture. And if, I'm just going to give you a couple thoughts that, that might kind of begin you on a journey of being a better student of God's Word. If you want to go even a little more deeper, let me, let me recommend a book to you. It's by a guy named Robert Plummer. It's called 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible. Let me double-check that title. Yes, 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible by, by Robert Plummer. And he just kind of goes, here's 40 questions that people sometimes have about how to study their Bible. And so that might, that might be helpful to you. But let me just give you a couple thoughts here about how to read your Bible. Number one, let me as you talk about careful study. I'm going to examine my test. Number one, read, read your Bible prayerfully. Read prayerfully. Read prayerfully. Psalm 119, verse 18. The psalmist prays to the Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Psalm 139, the psalmist recognizes his own spiritual lack, and so he prays, he says this about God, he says, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And so as I I go to God's word, I, I recognize this, I recognize that my heart is desperately wicked, and there's going to be a tendency that I have, and there's going to be a tendency that you have as well, to read what God's word says, and in my pride, resist it. And so if I'm going to, to be a Berean and to carefully read God's word, what, I, what do I need to do? I need to say, okay, God, please open your word to me. And, and Lord, I recognize my tendency is going to be re- to resist doing the things you've called me to do. You're going to tell me some things about my pride and my heart's going to say, no, that doesn't apply to, to you. It's going to tell me some things about my greed, and it's, I'm going to say, you know what? It doesn't really mean me in this situation. It's going to tell me some things about immorality, and I'm going to say, well, that doesn't apply to, to this aspect of my life. God, search me. So, so if I'm going to read God's word effectively, if I'm going to be a Berean and study it carefully, I need to read prayerfully. Secondly, I need to read knowledgeably, right? Sorry, I'm messing up whoever's doing the, the pro presenter. Sorry about that. Don't go on to, uh, oh, no, I'm not. Never mind, I'm messing up myself. <laughs> I need to read carefully. Um, so the study's careful. I, I read prayerfully. And then secondly, I read knowledgeably. I read knowledgeably. That is, I, I read for understanding. I read from, for understanding. As God opens my heart, like he did with Lydia in Acts 16, there should be the ability to, to grasp what he says. So, again, you have that, that situation where you, okay, I'm going to do my quiet time, read my Bible, get up. Someone says, what did you read in your quiet time? I'm not sure. Can't really remember. And what I do remember, I don't know what it meant. Right? You know, it's, it's far, sometimes we try to read through the Bible in a year, and, and that can be really good and encourage people to do that some years. But if you read through the Bible in a year and you're not quite sure what you read or any of what you read because you didn't read a little more slowly, knowledgeably, that, that's, that's not as helpful, right? Sometimes I encourage people to go, go a little slower. Make sure you understand what you're reading. So how do, how do I read knowledgeably? Well, I, I think you want to do, what you, as you read through the Bible, you want to ask yourself some questions. Think about, uh, you know, Kipling wrote that famous line, I have six faithful serving men who taught me all I know. Their names are what and where and when and how and why, and who, right? So as, as I read through, this, this might just be a helpful thing for you to do as you think about what's one thing I could do as I think about applying the sermon. Just open up a, a journal, get a piece of paper or something, and as you read the Bible, ask yourself those, those six questions. Kind of start off with, with what? What is this passage about? As you read the Bible and you read a paragraph, you read the section of the Bible that you're reading, just take a moment and say, can I answer the question, what was this about? Do I have the ability to just write down in a sentence or two what was happening in this story? 
Can I answer the question, who was in the passage, and, and when did this take place, and, and where did this take place? So, for example, if you're reading Acts 16, what would you do, you, or Acts 17 here? You'd say, okay, well, um, when, this is on Paul's second missionary journey, who's here? Well, he, it mentions brothers, it mentions Paul and Silas. Now, it mentions Jews, that must be important, it says, and it compares these Jews to the Jews in Thessalonica, and it, it, it mentions Greek women, and so you would, act, you would say, okay, who's in this passage? Jews and Greeks and Paul and Silas. And you see, you're already going deeper in the study of the text. You're, you're carefully thinking about who are these people who are mentioned? What are they doing? Where is this happening? Why, why is it important this in Berea? And where's this other place, Thessalonica? You see, you're, you're reading through more carefully and understanding what's taking place. You ask, you ask the question, Why? Why has God put this here? That's an that's a essential question to ask yourself every time you open God's word, every time you come to a Sunday morning sermon. Why is this text here? That's, that's the first thing that I, that I do as I begin to prepare my sermon after I've kind of studied the text. The text. Why did God put this here? Why is, is this here? What is God trying to teach us in this text? And then the how, how, how do I apply it? Read carefully. Read repeatedly and, and slowly as you go through the text. So read careful. The study of the scriptures is careful. You read prayerfully. You read, you read um, knowledgeably. You also read contextually. There, there needs to be, an, as you think about careful reading, you also need to read contextually. You're, you're aware of how what you're reading fits in to the entire study of, of the Bible. Here, here's sometimes a, a problem that I think we have. We, we don't really have a plan, and so we just kind of... In the morning or the evening, so you know what, I'm just going to read, I'm going to read something, and we kind of open up our Bibles, and we point at a verse, and we just kind of start, well, it says here, he prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty, and he heard his plea, and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom, and then we close with, you know, I, I don't think about, okay, where was that passage that I just read? When you think about reading contextually, there's kind of like big context and small context you need to think about. First of all, you need to think, okay, what's the big story of Scripture? The big story of Scripture is, is Jesus and about his redemption. Remember, Jesus said in uh, John chapter 5, you search the Scriptures, you search God's Word because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's, it's these, these texts, these, this Word of God that bears witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus is saying, look, Scripture's about me, and so we need to recognize wherever I am in the Bible is, is part of an overarching story about God's redemption through Jesus Christ. And so I, I think about the big context of Scripture, and then I think about the, the smaller context. What, what book of the Bible am I in? What, what type of book is it? Is it history? Is it a book about the, the, the church here in Acts? Is it a book about Jesus' life? Is it a book by one of the prophets before Jesus came? I think about the, the genre, the, the type of book that it is. And I'm not just reading a, a verse by itself, but I'm thinking about the overarching, overarching message of that book. And then I'm reading about the context on a smaller level. Okay, what's, what's this paragraph about? I'm, I'm, I'm reading prayerfully. I'm reading knowledgeably, trying to understand what, what, what I'm reading is about. I'm reading contextually. I'm thinking about the whole story of the Bible as I read this section. Then I'm also reading culturally. This, this, this study's careful. I'm also reading culturally. You know, there's a, a big gap between the biblical world and our own. You, you may not know this. The early Christian church did not have TikTok. They did not have, I know, I know. They didn't have phones. I mean, there's, there's just so many gaps between what we experience on a daily basis and what the, the church here in Acts would have experienced on a, on a daily basis. And so as we read God's word, we need to have an understanding of, of some of the cultural things that that are happening in the biblical world. There's, some there's a gap of language. There's a gap of, of customs. Of, you know, we're, we're not in an, most of us are not in a, none of us are in an agrarian economy anymore. It's, it's just a much, much different world. I was talking with a, uh, a pastor this, this past week, and he was talking about this Bible software that he had gotten, and, uh, and it was like a you have thousands of dollars of investment that allowed him to have like all the, the commentaries in the universe almost, like on his phone. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. How many of them do you read? He's like, oh, I need two. You know, that, sometimes I think as we think about, I want to go deep in the Word, I need all of these books. And, and you, 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 
Books are good. I'm a fan. But really, you know, as you think about reading culturally, a good study Bible will, will do wonders. I encourage everyone to have a good study Bible, like a, the ESV study Bible is a, a great example. And I think we have some at our cost here in the, in the church. And so just having a good study Bible, it can allow you to understand the, the cultural things that were taking place when that letter was written or that book was written. I have more, but I'll, I'll just stop there for now. But, but basically, understand, in, in terms of talking about reading reading carefully, the studies careful. A mind that strives to understand God's word, the studies of the scripture, the, the study is careful. I want to know exactly what God's word says. I want, to, I want to go deep and make sure that I'm understanding what it says and, and I'm meditating on it. Psalm 1-2, his delight is on the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. But also that the study is daily. Notice that too here in the text. It says that they search the scriptures daily to see if, if the things that Paul and Silas were teaching them were, were true. In Scripture, we see the saints in daily communion with the Lord. Psalm 88, 13, it says, In the morning my prayer confronts you. So it's not just once a day that we go to God's Word. It's, it's, a, it's this constant thing. Evening, morning, noontime, I will lament and moan, and he will hear me. Psalm 55, 17. We're, we're going to God's Word, not just once a month and reading a whole bunch of it, but there's this daily need that we have. Just like we have a daily need for physical nourishment, we have a, a daily need to be going to God's Word and, and studying it and thinking about what God has to say to us. And then another thing about the study here, the study is, is determinative. This is crucial. As the Bereans study God's word, and as they come to the conclusion that what God's word says is the same thing that what Paul and Silas are saying, that settles the matter. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. There are many sources that are, are vying for supremacy of authority in our lives. Many voices that, that want to speak into what we should do, how we should think. One theologian put it, put it this way. He says, take your Bible and take your newspaper and, and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. Kids, newspapers used to be these things where you'd find out news. Sorry, old theologian, right? Cultural gap, right? Yeah. There are other sources of authority. Look, here's, here's what you need to do. And, and, and our, our temptation is to say, okay, I'm going to be a Berean. And we take, okay, this is what I'm reading on my whatever, Facebook feed or my Instagram. This is what it's saying about how I should feel about this issue. And here's what the Bible says. And, and I'm, going to take, I'm going to take them both. And I'm going to kind of be really influenced by what my friends are saying or what this, this, this voice that I trust is saying, what my pastor says. And, and it, it's not bad to, to listen to other voices, but ultimately I'm going to say, okay, here's what, here's what these, these sources of authority are saying and here's what the Bible says. And I'm gonna, I'm, I need to be aware of these, these topics and issues that are going on, but ultimately th these are not co-equal authorities. I'm going to interpret these things in light of what God's word says. This is going to be my foundational Epistemology, my understanding of knowledge is going to be based upon what Scripture says. And, and I, I need to study it carefully so I can understand it as, as much as God and His grace would allow me to. It's, it's determinative. What it says is what I do. This past April marked the 500th anniversary of the Diet of Worms, where Martin Luther famously defended his teachings from the, from the, the attacks of the, the church, the Catholic Church. And, and, you know, Luther got into some problems later in life. And where he did well was where he stayed tied to the Word of God. Where he did poorly is where he allowed his own opinions and thoughts to, to lead him in some unhealthy directions. But listen to what he said. And, and these words that he said at the Diet of Worms 500 years ago this year were spot on. He says this as he's trying to defend his teachings. He says, look, some of the things I wrote, meh. Some of the things, still good. But in terms of, they wanted him to recant his teachings. He says this, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures 
and by clear reason, for I don't trust in the Pope or councils alone, since it's well known that they've often erred and contradicted themselves. He says, I'm bound by the scriptures I've quoted. I'm, I'm held fast to those. Those are my source of authority. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything since it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And then he said, here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Luther did not want to be at odds with powerful men, but it became inevitable. He said, look, I'm going to ultimately do what God's word tells me I must do. We live in the, the information age, right? There is more information at our, at our fingertips than we could ever hope to, to, to sort through. And ultimately, we want to be a Berean. Being, being a Berean doesn't mean being arrogant. It doesn't mean being divisive. It doesn't mean saying, okay, I, I, I've, you disagreed with me on this issue, therefore you are out of the church, you're out of the faith, you're out of my circle. It means, okay, look, we're going to, we're going to understand what the gospel message is. That's, that's going to be our, our most important truth by which we determine unity or separation. And then I'm going to take, take life as it comes at me, and I'm going to constantly, by God's grace, go to the word of God and say, okay, God, you have the final say. What, humble me and, and, and tell me what to do. Tell me how to think. Tell me how to live. Revive me according to your word. Being a Berean means humbly and eagerly seeking to understand in Scripture what God has actually said. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel revealed in it. Lord, we, we don't ask this morning that you give us perfect understanding of all things. We, we recognize that there are gaps in our knowledge. There are gaps in our ability to, to grasp the world around us. And so, Father, we are humble this morning. We are humble not because in and of ourselves we're humble. We're, we're humble because you and your grace have, have forced humility upon us. We recognize our, our great need, and so we, we cry out to you in our need Reveal yourself to us. Do so in your word. Allow us to, to, to grasp the, the beauty of your son Jesus as revealed in your word. To believe in him, to have our, our confidence and our faith in him alone as we see the truth of the gospel revealed therein. And, and then, Father, allow us to live in obedience to that with great joy and purpose. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Let's pray the prayer of benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all ages forever and ever. And God's people said with joy, amen. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.